Good morning, Digital Wildcatters. Welcome to BDE. In the single greatest trade by a Texan since Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson fleeced the Minnesota Vikings with the Herschel Walker trade, I have traded in Colin McClellan, who today is out shopping for platform shoes, <laughs> for Brad Olson. Welcome in, Brad. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Absolutely. Now, trivia for you before we get started. Jimmy Johnson is from what Texas city? Uh, Dallas. No, Port Arthur. Do you even know who Jimmy Johnson is? Let's step uh, back. <laughs> I do. Although I'll admit the biggest anxiety about coming on a show with you is not the questions on energy or the markets. It's Chuck's going to want to talk about sports. <laughs> I'm going to gotcha. stare at the camera and say, I like, I like sports, <laughs> sports games. Sports uh, I like good. them a lot. Sports games. <laughs> Jimmy Johnson from Port Arthur, Texas, where he was a classmate of Janice Joplin. Exactly. Oh, there you go. Myself. I like it. I like it. All righty. Let's jump into this. All right. 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 And they said I couldn't make you cool. Look at that. <laughs> All right. As I'm sitting here with a premier long-only energy investor, Brad, give us kind of the state of the energy markets. And if you could kind of work in maybe some stuff from last year, maybe the year-end review letter of how we got to where we are, what's going on out in energy world? Yeah, look, obviously, when the market is going against you, you're you're decidedly not smart and nobody <laughs> cares what you say. And so in 2020, the reality was whether it was upstream, downstream, midstream, CapEx was being cut to the bone. Capacity for refineries was being taken offline permanently. Upstream production was falling 20, 30 percent. And the general attitude of the market was good. We're never going to need this stuff again anyway. And so 2021 was basically a story of as demand gets even close to normal, because we're still not at normal demand. We're not flying as much. We're not doing all the same things we did pre-COVID. As life gets close to normal, we're already starting to see tightness in the supply-demand picture. And so 2021 was a story of demand getting close to normal. Uh, obviously, supply still not still not back anywhere to where it was in, in 2019. And really, you know, the question for 2022 is, can we sustain that? Is the supply si uh, side of things going to stay disciplined? And will we see kind of the final missing piece of demand in air travel and uh, people commuting every day to work? Will, will that come back? So when we look at the capital discipline side of this story, is it truly capital discipline? I, they learned their lesson. We're going to run good, solid businesses. Nickel and dimes matter. Or is it truly that we don't have a spot to spend the capital or some of both? You know, the, the optimist, if you wanted an optimistic case study, you'd probably look at the refining industry in the early 2000s. The refining industry was probably more guilty than any other part of the energy sector in the early 2000s of, you know, everybody in China is going to drive an SUV. And as China buys its Hummers, they're going to need us to produce more gasoline. And, you know, the refiners ramped up capacity. They outspent every year. 
And then finally, after 2008, those CEOs got fired. They got replaced by a bunch of CFOs who had been sitting ringside and watching <laughs> their stock <laughs> price get beat up. And those CFOs took over those companies and said, we're not building ahead of demand. We're not anticipating some huge wave of SUV buying in Asia that may or may not happen. And if you look at refining, I mean, the compound returns since the early 2000s till today have been far and away the best of any energy subsector. So I'd like to believe that at least some of the, the bad actors have either been uh, chastened or removed from the system. And you, you do have a different set of decision makers with a different set of incentives. Now, that's the, who's to say that five years of $100 plus oil, obviously people are going to drill again. But I think it is going to be a different kind of cultural environment than it was uh, from 2010 to 2020. So we're sitting here and I think I hear what you're saying is that there's the big, huge bull case for oil. Is this a six month, one year, five year, 20 year what are you thinking on the uh, on the bull case? Look, it, it is behavioral, right? I mean, I think somebody like like Scott Sheffield, who a lot of times is viewed as speaking for the industry. I mean, he basically said that we'll know it's time to drill again when our valuation gets to a point where our investors are effectively giving us a license to grow. And today they don't have a license to grow. And, you know, the reality is there's a there's really a math equation here that a cheap company that trades at a low valuation multiple throws off a big yield because yields obviously the inverse of your of your multiple. And so if you're at a low multiple, the market is paying you to generate a huge yield. If you trade at a high multiple, you can't generate a huge yield. And so the market is paying you to grow and to increase the size of your enterprise. So right now, there's no question that the market is not letting these guys grow, whether that sustains for two, three, four years you know, that, that remains to be seen. Well, the, the interesting thing that I see kind of on that front is we're sitting here and oil's north of $90 and we're sitting here with low multiples, high yields, just like you're talking about. So they're saying, don't drill. When we look out four years, oil is still below 70. And as of three weeks ago, oil was 62. I think it's 67 now, you know, four years out. Is the market basically telling us, hey, guys, oil's at 60 to 65 forever. This is a blip. That's why we don't want you to go full board on the on the on the rigs just yet. And I'll throw another question in there so that you've got 12 to sort through <laughs> when you're when you're answering this. But is that also uh, in addition, is the is the four year curve out there correct? Or well, is it the, missing it? The, the curve's never correct, right? You know, I think uh, when I worked at TPH, Dave Purcell always said that, you know, the the front, the futures curve is just where people are transacting. It's not a prediction. And, you know, the reality is there are a lot more structural sellers of, of crude four years in the future, a lot more ENPs who are inclined to lock in price, and there aren't a lot of structural buyers of crude. So you would expect a natural backwardation to the crude futures curve, but Look, I think in all reality, um, as long as we're at $90 oil price and 600 rigs, people have reason to be optimistic in the short term about oil price staying high. Obviously, over the next four years, what happens? Do incentives change? Do, uh, you know, do concerns about undersupply 
finally get these companies to add rigs. Uh, I think the market is right to be a little bit more skeptical about the price being $90 four years from now. We just still haven't seen enough cards to really make a call on that. Did you ever used to watch the John McLaughlin show? He used to always do something. Once again, you have stumbled upon the answer. <laughs> I think that's I think that's actually the big point is there is no natural buyer of oil four years out. The one person that might do that is the airlines, and they're a mess, right? Yeah. They have no clue. I mean, I think you can start getting your arms around it. I, I'm willing to uh, pronounce the death of COVID and that we're all going to be flying like there's no tomorrow by the end of the year. But I don't know that they can enter hedges on the basis of that. I certainly wouldn't. No, that's right. I mean, the airlines obviously have have probably seen the biggest uh, balance sheet deterioration of any sector of the economy through COVID and and uh, with all that debt and a lot of airplanes uh, being purchased in the next couple of years. They don't have the same capacity to lock in a multi-year hedging program. So, all right. So let's run through some events. we got a bull story here, at least over the next six to 12 months. Doesn't mean, Kane, I don't want you to sell all those private companies that I'm still invested in as a side note. But <laughs> let's run through some events. Number one, the Russians go march into Ukraine. Does that happen? What does that do to energy? Is it already priced into the market? Give me all things Russia. Yeah, so uh, I, I don't think we talked about this on the podcast, but I actually studied abroad in Russia and was a Russian studies major at Rice. You know, my parents were very nervous about my job prospects back, back then. But uh, <laughs> so you go into energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. perfect. And and the reality is, you know, Vladimir Putin is the master of he's he's always at the table holding, you know, two, three unsuited or two threes. And he is uh, a master of taking a crappy hand and freaking out everyone else at the table. So the short answer is no, I don't think he invades. I think he's gotten uh, a lot of leverage without wasting a lot of, of money and lives uh, from the Russian side by occupying pieces of Ukraine. I don't think there's any real upside in, in taking a bite of the whole country, but I will say, you know, I get the question a lot from folks who know I studied in Russia, why does Putin have so much political capital to mess around and do things like Ukraine? And uh, a little anecdote I, I don't think I ever shared. When I was studying abroad, we were looking for a place to go during our you know, spring break equivalent in Russia. And I said, well, you know, maybe we can go down uh, you know, to the Crimea in Ukraine, but I don't have a visa to travel to Ukraine. And the, the Russian woman, the 50-something Russian woman that I lived with said, you don't need a visa to go to Crimea. If, you, if you're in Russia, you can just go to Crimea. There's no visa. And I said, well, Crimea is a different country. And she said, no, it's not. <laughs> and I sat there and it was kind of an awkward moment. And I grabbed the yellow pages off her, off her shelf and I flipped to the area codes page and it showed Crimea with the Ukrainian area code on it. And she just looked at the page so dejected and said, we gave, a, we gave away everything. We used to be a great country. And I would thought to myself, like, this is like a Seinfeld moment, like Ukraine is a strong country. And I remember sitting there and it was kind of a sorry about the dissolution of your communist empire. I'm going to go look at places to travel for my spring break, <laughs> you know, but but it was kind of a reminder of like when Putin enters these countries, Europeans and Americans are like, this guy's crazy. What he's doing? What's he doing? And the reality is for certain areas like the Crimea, there is a belief that we gave it away to Ukraine for no reason. We were okay taking it back, but I think there's a lot less support for invading all of Ukraine and your average American, I just don't think gets that. 
That's the most pathetic geographical story I've heard since a friend of mine moved from Denver back to Oklahoma City. And I said, dude, why'd you do that? I've never heard of anyone leaving Denver. And he said, Oklahoma City is God's country. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't get that. So, okay. So does not go in. Does China go into Taiwan? And what does that do to us? You know, that that's a tougher one. Not a, not a, part of the it's a part of the world that matters a lot more and i guess shame on me for being a russian studies major because china matters a lot more and i've got a lot less insight but i think obviously if if china were to ever do anything militarily to taiwan look i think the us has has done a lot of uh, countries around the world a favor because we made occupying countries look very hard over the last you know 20 25 years and so if you're sitting in in beijing or you're sitting in moscow you now know that it's really hard to invade and occupy a country that doesn't want you there, uh, especially economically advanced countries with well-educated populations. So I don't think either country really goes full invasion, but there's obviously no money to be made in acting like you're never going to invade because then you don't have any leverage and the U.S. doesn't take you as seriously. So always talk about invading, never invade is kind of the geopolitical playbook. I got you. The I'm actually worried about that one because for some reason and I don't can't put my finger on it was not a Chinese studies major, you know, always uh, ordered generals uh, Sal's chicken, you know, so very bland when I go eat at Chinese restaurants. But for some reason, Taiwan seems to be a hill they may want to die on. And I and I don't know why I'm saying that. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, right? I mean, war is the ultimate negative sum game. It is the it is a game where it is very hard to pull off a United States in World War II style. You end up bigger, stronger than you were going in. Vast majority of the time, all sides regret it. And so it would be um, a real step out and a real change from China's aggressive, but ultimately... Uh, you know, they've been aggressive, but always stopping short of actual armed conflict. So I hope you're wrong. And I hope that, you know, just playing, uh, you know, an aggressive game of poker is is all that it is. And well, and they do play the long game. I mean, I also felt the same way about Hong Kong. And I don't know that they actually invaded Hong Kong, but some in Hong Kong would feel like that happened. So yeah, sure. Exactly. All right. So what have we seen through earnings season? Anything interesting, any trends, themes pop out of that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think the 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 key theme, in, in my opinion, is that kind of as we all knew going in, inflation is hitting the entire economy. But if you're an energy company, you can pass on inflation. So even though energy companies are experiencing their own form of inflation, you're talking to E&P companies who are, whose CapEx is structurally going higher because they've run out of ducks to complete um, you're talking to, to uh, you know, refining companies who are handling more expensive inventories because they now have to buy a $90 barrel to process into gasoline and distillate. You know, all the energy companies are experiencing their own inflation. Energy is typically an industry that burns through labor and steel. Labor and steel are obviously getting much more expensive on a year-over-year basis. But ultimately, the the blessing and the curse of the commodity, you know, commodity industries is when things are bad, you got no pricing power. When things are good for your industry and you're benefiting from underinvestment, the, you know, the price is the price. And you're able to push through that price in a way that you know, Peloton and, and Facebook aren't necessarily <laughs> able to push through all their costs. 
So I'm going to come back to Facebook in just a second. But while we're here talking about inflation, I can't figure out how to think about inflation because where I think it matters is ultimately demand destruction. Mm-hmm. No question. Nothing cures high oil prices like high oil prices. So half of me sits there and goes, okay, inflation-adjusted oil prices are lower than historic points that we saw demand destruction. We're okay. The other half of me says inflation means less money for everything. That's bad. Demand destruction happens despite the oil price. How should I be thinking about that? Yeah, look, I I think the reality is uh, it's a hard case study to draw up because in 2008, there was a lot of discussion about $150 oil potentially creating demand destruction. But that also coincided with a synchronized global credit implosion of our banking system. Right. And so you look back in the, the late 70s and the early 80s, oil prices were surging. The economy was in bad shape and still, you know, oil prices remained elevated. People making less money didn't really rein in that that market. Ultimately, Alaska, the North Sea, the Soviet Union, Mexico, big offshore projects ended that oil bull market, not demand destruction. And so when people ask us about about demand destruction at recurrent, I mean, the reality is your average American is 60% richer than he was in 2008. He drives a much more fuel efficient car. Uh, he spends a much smaller percentage of, of his, his wallet on gasoline because gasoline prices are flat over 14 years. Everything else from college education to you know groceries has gone up meaningfully. You know, Oil and gasoline have, have uh, way underperformed CPI in the last 15 years. So I'm not as concerned that $100 a barrel is going to grind the entire global economy to a halt, although things like the price of natural gas going to 30 in Europe is probably much more a a potential candidate for that kind of disruption. You know, Pickering and I talked about that when he came on and co-hosted the show. By the way, you're doing much better than Pickering. I'll just say (laughs) that. Sorry, Dan. But the thing that $30 natural gas in Europe did made European governments make the choice between industry and keeping people alive in Mm -hmm. their homes. And I think we've seen that. We've highlighted the last few shows. This smeltering plant is shut. This ammonium plant is shut and the like. So I do think that's that's a real thing on on demand destruction vis-a-vis oil. I'm still not sure. I mean, I asked the question because I honestly didn't know. Yeah, I mean, look, I I think. it's hard to point to a single price that destroys demand. And obviously all the macro economists have their, their correlations and their models. But the reality is if you looked at a basket of everything we as human beings consume over the last 15 years, you'd be hard pressed maybe other than flat screen TVs to find something that has gotten more affordable the way that oil has even at $90 a barrel. And so when people say like, you know, look, we're coming out of a brutal multi hundred uh, percent period of underperformance versus the broad equity market. So the energy investors out there are totally justified in flinching and you know being scared of their own shadow. But the reality is $90 oil is not going to be the thing that ends this bull market. It could be going back to drilling like crazy. It, it could be uh, you know some other black swan, but I, I just don't think demand destruction is that is that black swan. You know what will be the signal to short the energy business? 
Chuck Yates gets a job. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, we're long. If you, yeah, if you could call me as soon as that happens so we could trade on that before it hits the tape, that'd be great. Absolutely. Okay, let's go back to Facebook real quick. Facebook comes out, says they lost users or visits or whatever it was. What, are they down 25% since then? Why am I bringing this up on an energy show? Well, you know, tech is over 20% of the market. Energy is about 3% of the market. So if we ever want to go back to our long-term historical average of, you know, 7 to 12% of the market, we probably need to take a few percentage points uh, away from tech. <laughs> <laughs> Talk it Talking about Putin being the little pissant that runs, you know, out. Wait, 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 wait. That's energy and tech, I guess, oh, as well. Russia is the original bad energy management team. Like before <laughs> it was a thing, like Russia was the mismanaged uh, single variable oil management team. Perfect. No. So here's a stat I'm going to throw at you that I've heard about this. So your three, three and a half percent energy is of the S&P 500, technologies over 20. That's the S&P 500. If you look at a value investor portfolio, in some of them, energy is pushing 10, 11, 12%. That's actually our path back, the, the rotation out of tech and into value investing. And there we are meaningful. There, maybe to get more quote unquote inventory, will actually, a value investor will buy an offering by an oil and gas company. Any truth to that or? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the reality is energy's always been outsized in value over the last 10 years. Energy's played a big role in, in value portfolios and energy's been part of the reason that value portfolios have massively underperformed the market and growth portfolios. Right. So the reality is energy's kind of been the shackle around the leg of, of a value portfolio over much of the last 10 or even 15 years on a relative basis. So by energy outperforming, we're ultimately making value portfolios look better and potentially driving incremental capital dollars as well as, you know, passive investors back into more of a valuated portfolio. So it's, it's all tied together. All right. Very cool of you to adopt the segments we do on this show. <laughs> so one of our favorite segments, the underappreciated story of the week, you've got one and, uh, and I have one. Let's do it. So I need to apologize for that intro again. <laughs> it's like Katherine Johnson, the scientist who cracks the code, allows us to put people on the moon, and Colin chooses pineapple and jalapeno pizza <laughs> as underappreciated out there. But Brad, what's your underappreciated story of the week? Look, I think the interesting thing, in my opinion, is that nobody ever pays attention until it's already happened, but the UK and now my home state, uh, a home state whose identity I usually conceal in, in energy audiences, but I grew up in New Jersey and New Jersey followed the UK's path in going from one of the most restrictive uh, states for COVID, COVID regulations and mask wearing to effectively ending all of those restrictions in public places. And I think just last night, maybe Maryland, Delaware, and a couple other states followed suit. So I think it's fascinating going into a, a midterm election that you've got, you know, blue states that have historically been more on the restrictive side, go from restrictions 
to basically trying to take COVID out of the equation before election season starts in earnest. So the thing I saw along those lines, and what was this, two or three weeks ago, but they started announcing the death statistics in COVID along with more comorbidities. And so I think it was 75% of all COVID deaths had four or more COVID, COVID uh, or had comorbidities to it. And so you're starting to hear the narrative of, oh, they died with COVID. And I think that's going to continue to take over uh, during the summer. Because at the end of the day, I don't know how Biden fights the midterms when he started with vaccines, therapeutics, et cetera, and has more deaths than Trump did. Well, Chuck, I applaud you for trying to find a logic to the COVID policies. I feel it's more like, uh, you know, to, to quote one of my favorite philosophical treatises, uh, Speed starring Keanu Reeves, you know, take away the guy's leverage, shoot the hostage, take him out of the equation, right? Right now, the, the leverage, COVID is clearly a leverage point for any challenger candidate. If you're an incumbent candidate, you want to shoot COVID, take it out of the equation, and uh, basically level the playing field that way. Take the hostage out of the <laughs> equation. I like that. My underappreciated story of the week, and, and stick here with me. This is going to take a little bit to get, but tequila has grown in popularity dramatically over the last five years. You had George Clooney doing his brand. You've had literally every major celebrity create their own tequila its sales growth rate has put it on a path that it will overtake vodka in terms of sales in the United States within two or three years. Vodka has been the number one uh, liquor sold in the United States since the early 70s. Why do I bring this up? I'm not a huge tequila fan after that night in junior, when I was a junior in high school <laughs> and I did slammers for the first time. Not pretty. But in all seriousness... Tequila is less energy intensive than uh, vodka and transportation is going to change because all of tequila is made basically in northern Mexico. And that's how we're going to get it. Has a really nasty waste product, though. A lot of water. So as we watch this transition, maybe that impacts demand a little. Bearish Russia. No. <laughs> Bearish Russia. Take that. <laughs> you invade Ukraine. No more vodka. <laughs> All righty. Now, this is my favorite part of the of the of the show every week. You ready? The, and, and are we are we willing to say that this was actually a mutual decision or do you just want to push it all towards me? Uh, are okay. we on the finger? We're on the finger. OK. Break. Yeah. Well, look, you told me my fingers were too edgy. So I'm just <laughs> glad that you talked me off the ledge. Perfect. All right, everybody. Here it is. Your finger of the week. All right, Brad, this week's Finger of the Week goes to Judge Stephanie Thacker and the Sierra Club. The Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline was 94% built. It had had all its approvals. It's basically taking natural gas from the Marcellus to the East Coast, right? Yep. It's going to hit, I think, D.C., potentially Baltimore, and they held it up uh, because they claimed it did not 
uh, passed the National Environmental Policy Act standards. Uh, supposedly, the problem is potential repercussions for the Roanoke log, log perch and the candy darter, which I hear are not very good tasting fish <laughs> anyway. But guys, at the end of the day, when you look at the Northeast, 15 to 20% of their heat this winter was burning oil. I mean, mm -hmm. it was heating oil. And number two, they import LNG from other countries instead of just running a pipeline for the Marcellus up to the Northeast. Russia again. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there you go. There's our finger of the week. Yeah, look, I think the thing, you know, as an investor, it's the, the real issue to me is this stuff is, uh, it's, it's kind of atomizing our society's decision-making, right? Nobody's having a debate about, hey, should we get rid of burning oil and replace it with burning natural gas? Because obviously nobody disagrees with that. The real issue is that you take the most thoroughly researched endangered species permit in pipeline uh, approval history, and you basically say, hey, you know, for this 15 mile bit, the endangered species seem okay, but for this next 10 mile bit, it's a slightly different soil composition, so it might have a different impact on the species there. You're kind of getting to a point where you've got the Sierra Club who's fundraising on the back of stopping this pipeline. They've got no real monetary objective. They don't want to improve the pipeline. They don't want to make it safer. They just want to kill this thing and roll it into their next fundraising uh, cycle. So it really gets to a situation where instead of finding a better outcome, there's just one side that's kind of nitpicking and the other side that's basically held hostage to that process. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of it that way, that you really are taking something that should be a national discussion, various players debating, and instead we're nitpicking little things about it and all. I was just going to suggest more tartar fish or more tartar sauce for the candy <laughs> darter and that that might do it. So, well, Brad, you were cool to sit in for Colin today. I really appreciate that. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. How do uh, people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about Recurrent? Yeah, so I'm a co-founder at Recurrent Investment Advisors. We manage long-only portfolios, as you were nice enough to point out earlier. And, uh, you know, our website, recurrentadvisors.com, is there with all of our white papers and research papers, which we update at least once a month. Um, so, you know, anybody who wants to get in touch with us, uh, that's where we are. Everybody have fun at NAEP this week. Be safe. Um, on the Digital Wildcatters front, we've got a really neat podcast drop on Wednesday morning where we went to Clayton Williams' office. Mel Riggs, his uh, CFO, showed us around. The office is as it was the day Clayton passed away a couple of years ago. And Clayton's widow, Modesta, was there and showed us around the office. So we're going to drop that Wednesday morning, just, you know, a look at Clayton Williams. Because I don't know about you, you're too young to remember him like I did. But, man, that guy was great. Very cool. Take care, Digital Wildcatters.